Hi everybody, JP here. Just a quick reminder that as we reach the end and beginning of yet another academic year, the Neurosurgery Podcast has a host of great content in our catalog for everyone transitioning to a new position this year. In particular right now, I want to talk to people ascending to senior residency who have to start thinking about fellowships and jobs once they finish training. I'll point you to our third episode about choosing your first job, our ninth episode with Judy Roseman, the professional matchmaker of neurosurgery. Um, To everyone looking for fellowship positions instead of a job right out of training, I'll point you to episode 59 with my boss, Dr. Vincent Trainellis, talking about selecting a fellowship. And then, of course, for everyone starting residency, there are ways to stay productive and keep productive even right out of the gate. I'll point you to episode 57 with Dr. Bobby Stark down in Miami talking about academic and publishing productivity during training. And then, of course, it seems like forever ago, but it was just one year back, our series Hell Week talking to new and rising interns about not the technical aspects or the knowledge base for neurosurgery, but how to be. And we're talking about being a good person, being a good physician, and surviving the social and political environment of the hospital. So with that, I hope you enjoy that past content and it's helpful. Now let's get on to today's episode. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. Today, we have a very special episode. Today, we are recording with Dr. John Cowan. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Now, let me just give a brief introduction. Dr. Cowan did his residency training at the University of Michigan. He is a private practice general neurosurgeon, does mostly spine in Rome, Georgia. Uh, Am I correct on that, John? That's right. Okay, awesome. Now, we know that you have a lot of hobbies. You own a toy company, and maybe we can get to that later. But we really wanted to talk to you about some very interesting developments that have happened in your life in the past couple of years, and that is that you ran for a uh, U.S. congressional seat. Is that correct? That's right. I ran for an open seat that came open when uh, Congressman Tom Graves decided to retire in 2019. Now, this is very important uh, for us in America. I know not all our listeners are in America, but there are a lot of political developments of late. And in the 2020 election, the particular seat Dr. Cowan's talking about is the 14th District of Georgia. And we're going to get back to why that is such an important seat and uh, all of the political controversy that's come up over it. But Dr. Cowan, let's get back to you and, and tell me a little about how you came to the idea, I mean, you're a busy neurosurgeon, you're doing surgeries, you're doing minimally invasive operations. What possessed you to want to run for office? Well, the short answer is uh, I'm crazy, Mike. (laughs) Actually, no, I'm not. I I really have a servant's heart. I, uh, you know, I grew up on a cattle farm in Northwest Georgia, and my dad was a primary care doc. My mom was an educator, and my granddad was uh, a businessman. He was into about 20 different things, kind of like I am. But he also got into politics later in life. And 
I always saw how both my dad and my granddad and my mom were really able to serve people in a variety of ways. And I've always thought that even though I went into a hyper-technical field and, and really doing great work there, that there were other ways that, frankly, God can use you to serve people. And as many of you have noticed, uh, we're in a really troubling time in this country where we need responsible leaders, servant leaders, and people with a steady hand on the rudder of our democracy to run. And so that's why I threw my hat in the ring. Now, politics is so different from medicine, right? Especially neurosurgery. In neurosurgery, we're always trying to tell the truth and lay it out like it is. And of course, politicians, we know about that, right? So did, did you find this to be difficult to get in that process of, of, uh, of, of sort of, uh, you know, thumping around and trying to get voters out and talking about your policies? Was it a natural thing or what, did it take a lot of adjustment? Well, you know, fortunately, I'm in a very uh, Republican, conservative-minded district, so there really wasn't a lot of argument about policy and trying to convince people about limited government and preservation of uh, basic rights, things like that. I think the difficult part was trying to convince people that uh, certain styles of leadership would be more conducive to protecting freedoms than other uh, styles of leadership. But you know, I kind of likened going to a campaign event to being uh, doing a day in clinic. Uh, you never know who's going to walk through the door. You get asked all sorts of strange questions. And there is that moment one on one where it's you and the and the constituent or the likely voter uh, who I liken to the patient, where you have that uh, brief, intimate moment where they may reveal questions and concerns to you that they may not share with others. And you have that opportunity to try to address those, help those, and, and really hear their concerns. So there really are a lot of, uh, there is a lot of overlap. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, in, in, in many respects, uh, my neurosurgery training didn't necessarily prepare me to uh, be a politician. It, it taught me how to work hard and go on little sleep, which, which that was no problem during the campaign. But uh, there were lots of other, uh, you know, things we had to learn on the fly. You know, Dr. Cowan, I love the parallel you draw between town halls and meeting with constituents and the clinic process. The, the role of the neurosurgeon in clinic is something Dr. Wang and I talk about very frequently on this podcast because it, it can often be neglected by the surgeon. Um, but I also love that you talk about your training as a neurosurgeon, getting you prepared to work hard, but maybe not prepared for that experience where you're dealing with people in, in the context of ideas and in concepts, not in a clear-cut physical reality, like when we counsel people about something that's physically, mechanically, anatomically true with them, we're talking about concepts and truths that may be relative or subjective in their essence. Um, what was that experience like for you dealing with both constituents, but also with a press who, as you're going out there with genuine good intentions, trying to help the people in your own community, talking to people who may misunderstand you, who may deliberately misinterpret your words, or who may have different meanings for those same words that you're using to try and describe your vision for what your community could be. Well, that's right. That's a great point, uh, John. It's, it's uh, you know, there's a reason they print newspapers in black and white. Is because it, it many times things come come across as black and white when we know that the world really is various shades of gray and there there there's nuance to almost everything in life that is very hard to convey in a, a thirty second 
you know, uh, clip or a one sentence quote. And, and many times that gets lost. And I think, you know, in the social media, uh, low attention span type society we live in, I think that's where a lot of us get into trouble. That's where a lot of politicians get into trouble. And they, instead of learning to be more serious, they've tried to live in that environment. And just like if I were to walk in and tell you, uh, you've got a brain tumor, this is what we're going to do. Here's the outcome in 15 seconds. I would not be doing justice to the gravity and severity and potential options and scenarios that we have to go through, maybe even over the next several months in that encounter. And just like you're talking about, you know, tax relief or foreign policy or social issues, you really can't do them justice in 30 seconds. And unfortunately, many times that's all you that's all you get in an encounter with a constituent, in a debate, or even in the, in the press. And so that is one of the problems we have in politics. You, you know, I think that our society has suffered greatly from, over the past few decades, this movement towards the soundbite form of communication on the news, and particularly with cable news. And podcasts as a medium have helped us get away from this, where we're not limited by the amount of airtime that we have. Um, but I think it's very interesting to think about the interaction of you as a surgeon with a press not used to talking to a man of science, uh, a man of a technical medical specialty. Uh, I'll give you an example. Like the dutiful resident that I am, I did my homework and I prepared for this interview and I read many articles about your recent campaign. And like anyone who went to college in the 21st century, I went straight to Wikipedia. And in every Wikipedia article I could find about you and your role in the campaign, it referred to you, I'm sorry to say, as a neurologist, sir. And so when the primary resource for many readers out there, many young people who go straight to a source like Wikipedia, can't even get your specialty right, what hope is there that you can communicate with your constituents in an effective way when you're forced to go through these channels? It's very difficult. And, and the one thing that was uh, kind of astounding was really the money uh, that it takes to effectively reach people in a district and how much money mm. you spend on media. And, and I don't know if there's not a great solution to it. I think it's a necessary evil unless you've already been in politics for years and years and years. And people, you know, you've sort of slowly developed that name ID. But it's very difficult for someone like me who's not necessarily been in the public eye to uh, to get a media presence, especially when a lot of it is you have to pay for it. There are certain people who, because of their outrage and, and ridiculousness, they get a lot of free media attention and that can help them. Or they've been in politics for a while and people have seen them in the newspaper over decades. And so for a newcomer getting into the game, it can there are some special challenges. Now, John, I, I actually went to Wikipedia as well as JP. I looked something up that was different, and I'm looking at the number of uh, folks that are in the House and Cong in Congress and uh, House and Senate. And currently, we have 20 doctors, uh, 17 in the Congress, and three in the Senate. And uh, the the number of physicians inside of the U.S. legislature has increased pretty steadily over the over the years. But have there uh, has there ever been a neurosurgeon elected to U.S. Uh, legislature? I, not that I'm aware of. I, I think certainly in the modern era of a specialty called neurosurgery, I would say no. I'm sure back in the Civil War, pre-Civil War era, there was a physician who may have cracked a skull or two 
uh, you know, who happened to serve in Congress. So, uh, but yeah, not in the not in the not in the modern era. There has. So let me let me cut right to the chase then and ask you about this very interesting race of the 2020 14th congressional district of Georgia. Now, for those of you who are not in the know, this is the uh, the seat, if you will, that's now occupied by Marjorie Taylor Greene. And we try not to get too political on this podcast, but uh, you may or may not be a fan of her. She's obviously uh, achieved a level of notoriety. And uh, John, you went up against her uh, in the Republican primary, correct? That's right. And then the runoff uh, that yeah. we had after the primary. And and that's a very Republican district. So whoever won that primary would probably be in Congress, correct? That's right. We're what's called an R plus 27 district, meaning a Republican who wins the primary runoff will win the general almost certainly. Yeah. So it's interesting because for those of you who don't know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is um, – has been accused of being sort of a, a, a fringe member on the right wing uh, with uh, a lot of different groups. And I don't want to name them because this podcast tries to stay above all that. But I think about the fact that, John, if you had won that primary um, or the runoff, that the the state of politics, at least as you see it on CNN or Fox News or you know the, the, the regular channels, would sound a little different today. Well, certainly coming out of the 14th district, they would. Uh, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but, you know, I've, I've had time to reflect on it and it, and it really, you know, I, I'm, I'm not debating that she didn't win the election fair and square. I think it's more of an indictment on what our district thinks of Congress and how they act and who they are that, that they would say, you deserve somebody like this to go up there and start throwing grenades and burn the place down figuratively and possibly literally. And, uh, and so I think the people of our district knew who she was, what they were getting. And they said, this is what Congress deserves. Now those are hard words to hear for any lover of democracy and, and anyone who loves our nation to think that we're living in communities with people who may feel that our institutions need to be torn down. Now, of, of course, inherent in our nation, uh, built into its bones from its founding, is the sense of tearing something down to rebuild it in a better form. But I think everyone on this podcast, in this conversation, most of our listeners come from the discipline of medicine. As physicians, we look more to heal and to repair that which is rather than to scrap it and start anew. How would you say that your philosophy politically is affected by your training as a physician to try and perhaps repair that which is rather than throw to the scrap heap and start fresh? Well, well, that's right. You bring a good point. As surgeons, we not only know how to cut and dissect, we know how to mend and put back together. Mm. And I think that's the problem with a candidate uh, like her and a congressman like her. She only knows how to tear down, how to set a set ablaze, stoke grievance, but then there's nothing to nothing there to rebuild. There's nothing there to put back together. There's nothing there to restore. So it's as if I started an operation, you know, opened the skin, stripped down the paraspinal musculature, crunched on some bone, and just kind of walked out of the room at that mm. point. And I think that's the kind of leadership we're getting is everyone loves to start the case. They love to get make a bloody mess 
And then once they've done that, they just kind of leave. And there's no concept that, okay, if you're going to tear down, you have to put it back together. And preferably, you build it stronger. You build it better to a diseased system. And that's what surgeons inherently do. So, Dr. Cowan, I, you know, I'm a supporter of yours. As you know, I've now donated to your PAC or your, your campaign since I met you uh, at the Georgia Neurosurgical, and I'm very proud of that. I think what you're doing is amazing. I try to encourage all the young people out there that don't have a lot of skeletons in their closet, like run for office, even if it's local school board or something, because neurosurgeons need a voice. Now, let's give you on this podcast, and I know we we have you know a couple thousand listeners, probably not a lot in the 17th district, but maybe they're going to open their wallets or help you or get the message out of what you're doing. I think it's amazing. Why don't you give us the pitch on why you should be elected to that congressional seat? Well, I, I think if you know we decide to run again, uh, it certainly will, will come a time where we need people to to donate and help, and and I would be on the lookout if there are any you know announcements coming from myself or from any other neurosurgeon. I think I think when you see a neurosurgeon or another specialty physician who's willing to make that leap and they're just not coming out of left field, that we all really ought to band together to support them because. I think we can see what what can happen uh, if we don't get behind credible candidates. Sometimes the loudest, most obnoxious voice wins. And so uh, I, I would say to listeners out there and, and other physicians, you have to get involved. You absolutely do. It matters. It matters. It matters. And uh, you may not like that. You may say, well, gosh, we wish, it, wish there weren't so much money in politics. But that's just the state. Uh, uh, of the affairs. And if, if we don't support good candidates, the bad candidates are going to win. You know, Dr. Cowan, uh, I, I find that humans so often silo our ways of thinking, in particular with our roles in society. And so when you talk to physicians, we're trained for years and then eventually decades to look at the patient in front of us. And we often think in a one-to-one way with an individual in front of us with a problem. And oftentimes we lose sight of the community as a whole. Um, I would point out that I I train at a place named Rush, named for Benjamin Rush, the only physician to sign the Declaration of Independence because he was the only physician involved in that whole process in a room full of businessmen and lawyers, the people who looked at the affairs of society and the movement of resources. There was one person who came from a discipline of looking at an individual and their well-being. And so I wonder if, in addition to making a pitch for involvement in your local community and and perhaps in your campaign in the future, should you have one, maybe could you make a general pitch for how you as a physician came to get involved in politics and and maybe push some of our listeners down that same path? How did you convert the one philosophy of the individual in front of you to thinking about the community at large? Well, I think if you if you don't think about the community at large, you don't get the opportunity and privilege to take care of that individual in front of you. I think you need to think you need to sort of deconstruct that encounter you get to have with a patient, either in the clinic or in the operating room and think about the number of uh, hands and minds and bodies it took to get that person in that position and the diagnostic things that had to happen and the job that that person had to have to get insurance and and, and, and everything to that point of, of uh, singular treatment that has to occur. And when you start walking back from that, 
you realize there's a lot of brokenness there. And there's a lot of places that frankly just need steady hands to shepherd the policies and, and, uh, and, and finances that allow those things to happen. And, you know, one of the, one of the famous lines of Benjamin Franklin, when he left the constitutional constitutional convention, when asked, you know, good sir, what type of government you have? And he says, a republic, if we can keep it. They understood the inherent fragility of our system of government, Mm. that it runs counter to human nature. And then if we don't have men and women of goodwill willing to shepherd it and guide it and protect it in leadership roles and servant roles, that it will die. And it will probably die from self-inflicted wounds, not from an external force. Um, the final thing is I do have to mention, I am a bit of a history buff, that Lyman Hall of Georgia was also a physician who signed the Declaration of Independence, although he was primarily known as a clergy. Back then, you could serve, you could wear several hats and get away with it. Ah. Yeah, things have gotten quite a bit more complex. But I, let me take a different tack on it, because I do think that we live in a democracy of sorts, and I think that's important because you know, representation is is uh, is our voice, right? And so, for the neurosurgeons or wannabe neurosurgeons out there, we need a voice as neurosurgeons. And I'm always reminded by my f- colleagues in, say, Japan, about how in Japan, um, you know, pediatricians and neurosurgeons and all their doctors are are paid the same. And I don't know how you could do that when neurosurgeons in Japan work uh, a, a multiplier of hours more than other non-surgical doctors and the, the amount of training that you have to go through and the strain and the stress and the level of responsibility has to, to some degree, be valued by society. Not that money is why we do this, but I think that when you look at how the systems in play now have been set up by, let's just say, Harvey Cushing and perpetuated by a whole lineage of our leaders, it leads to the situation where neurosurgery in America is like the crown jewel of of medicine, I think. I, I certainly feel that way. So tell us a little about how you would you would be in terms of the healthcare arena, right? So the healthcare arena is where you have the most competence, knowledge, and experience in terms of if you were to, elect, to be elected, if you run again to the uh, 14th district or any other district, what would be your policies on healthcare? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, first and foremost, we have to protect the free market in this country. I mean, the the force of liberty and equal opportunity that's been afforded to us by the framers is what has driven this economy, not only in healthcare, but in uh, manufacturing and business and high tech. Without liberty, the exponential growth we've experienced uh, in per capita income and quality of life and, and, uh, and technological advances would never have occurred. And that's borne out uh, with, with studies of history looking at you know, GDP growth over the past uh, five millennia compared to what's happened in the last 200 years, the majority of it spurned by the United States and the liberty we've experienced. So first and foremost, we have to preserve, protect liberty and maintain free markets where there's a voluntary exchange of goods. And I think those principles play in the healthcare arena where you decrease regulation, you remove big brother from the interaction, you allow doctors and patients to negotiate and come to agreements for prices, for treatments, and uh, uh, let them help make decisions. We are always, even though it may be error prone and there may be downsides, it will always be better than a market that is centrally driven. And so those are founding kind of principles. 
that that uh, I would that would guide me in any decisions I would be making going forward. You know, Dr. Cowan, um, nothing makes me happier than to hear someone discuss the concept of liberty with as much reverence as you do. I went into medicine to preserve individual liberty. Um, and any of my friends or acquaintances who are listening are already rolling their eyes because they have to hear me wax poetic about it uh, far too often. But I, I think oftentimes the the converse or the other side of the coin of individual liberty is the obligation we have to the people around us and the obligations that we assume with the role we take in society. In that mindset, I wonder when, when you were wrestling with the decision to run for office and then eventually actively pursuing it, what discussions did you have with your partners, with any patients you were following perhaps long-term in clinic, with your family? How did you talk with the people around you who had been used to you serving one role and wearing one hat in their lives, uh, gearing up to take a different path which would inevitably lead to less attention to your clinic to your practice, less time to be the neurosurgeon in your community because you were spending time being a politician? It's very difficult. I'll be, be uh, frankly honest. The decision to you know, change your family life and your professional life to do it uh, is very difficult. It's one that you know, I prayed a lot about. That we had a lot of discussions, and it was, it was, uh, it was a difficult decision. I, I, I liken it to someone who decides to go off to the mission, uh, you know, the mission field. Hmm. And they say, you know, I'm just feeling led to do this at this time in my life. I'm going to take a leap of faith and do it. I know it's that important for good people to jump in the uh, arena to do that. I'm going to do it. And if, if people don't, who will? And so uh, I really felt at that time, it was my duty to step forward and, and offer myself for service. I lost. And so the, the good part about that is when you go into a situation like that where you say, look, I'm willing to, to sacrifice something, uh, you know, that I've put invested a lot into to do good and you you lose. Um, well, you've, you've got something really good to fall back on. I'm certainly seeing my family more uh, now than I probably would if I were on a plane back and forth to uh, Washington, D.C. And, and I'm back in full time medical practice taking care of patients. So I count that as a blessing as well. Can you offer up some advice? Let's say there's someone out there listening who's thinking, yeah, maybe I'd run for a local office and I, I don't have any experience and I'm thinking about it and I have an aspiration of politics. Do you have any advice to offer the young people out there? Yeah, listen, I, I think if you've got a good heart, you've got a good head on your shoulders clearly by doing what you're doing and you've got a good work ethic um, and you've studied the other issues, right? I mean, I think we spend a lot of time in neuroscience text, anatomy text, learning, perfecting our hand-eye coordination. I mean, but once you kind of have that down, there is time for other reading. And, and I would encourage people to read some of the classics. I mean, read the biographies of our framers, uh, read books about free markets, read books about liberty, read a primers on the constitution and really understand uh, what went into uh, the founding and framing of our country, understand where we got it right, understand where we got it wrong. And then I think, you know, engage with people, do podcasts like this, listen to other podcasts, uh, uh, read the newspaper, read several newspapers, and really try to get yourself up to speed with what's going on, not only in your neighborhood, but nationally, internationally. And, and then just say, look, I'm here to serve. 
Uh, do not go into it to try to enrich yourself. Very similar to even in the Hippocratic Oath about, you know, serving others, teaching others in the medical profession. It's not designed to just selfishly enrich yourself, but to potentiate and pass on a trade and a skill to those who come behind you. Well, Dr. Callan, any group or organization will benefit from intellectual diversity, bringing different perspectives, different trainings, different modes of thought to the table. And I think that our society and the organized aspect of our society, which is our government and our elected officials, uh, equally would benefit from having individuals of various disciplines come to the table with not just their, their different um, backgrounds, but their different ways of approaching problems brought to bear in a political setting and in a policy setting. So on behalf of uh, Dr. Wang and I and everyone listening, we want to thank you not only for uh, your life of service in a medical field, but for putting yourself out there, taking this new and exotic road from what you knew to try and do something else that you felt called to do, um, as we do in medicine, to enrich the lives of those around you. And more specifically, we want to thank you for your time coming on the show tonight to share your experiences, your perspectives, and uh, your potential views for the future for both yourself or anyone listening who may seek to also go down that road and serve their community in a different way. Uh, thank you very much, sir, for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast. You're welcome. It was my pleasure, and I'm really glad that you guys are doing this. Thank you.